All right, I am Jocelyn Sokolfreys here with McMaster's Theory Podcast, Living Theory. Um, if you'd like more information about the podcast, you can find us at our website, livingtheory.squarespace.com. And if you'd like to interact with us, give us feedback, nominate a text. If you want to participate on the podcast, you can send me an email at livingtheorypodcast at gmail.com. Um, and you don't have to be in the Hamilton area to participate. All right, this week on the podcast, I have a guest named Emily Tyler. She is a student here at McMaster. And I'm just going to, Emily, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, yes, I am in the Master of Arts program in the Department of English and Cultural Studies at McMaster University, and my area of interest is cognition and narrative structure. Uh, more specifically, I'm looking at the idea of the conscious mind in terms of first-person narration. All right, let's get started. Okay, so we're looking at a text today, uh, Why We Read Fiction, Theory of Mind in the Novel, written by theorist Lisa Zenshine. And... Um, Emily, this is this is text you're reading for your work, for your project? Yes, it's in the field of cognitive narratology. So she's someone who's interested in um, looking at narrative from a very interdisciplinary point of view, um, bringing in uh, folk psychology, um, uh, linguistics, uh, as well as neuroscience, and um, trying to place those all within a a way, a way in which a humanities person might be able to integrate those um, narratives into the work that we do as literary theorists. literary theorists, and alternatively, the ways in which literature can act as an example um, of certain functions uh, to those fields. Okay, so let's take one kind of little easy step back there. Um, you said cognitive narratology. So what is that field? What is it trying to do? Um, so the narratology part, I guess, is something that I'm a little closer to. So narratologists uh, come out of a, a field of structuralism. So we're looking at the, the ways that texts show patterns in narrative structure, um, how they're formulated, how they construct fictional worlds, so how they look semantically, so how, how words create these structures inside of uh, uh, patterns. Uh, and those also include patterns of stories like mythology that kind of thing, different stories that we use over and over again. Um, cognitive, uh, the word, is what what is key to the interdisciplinary area. There's a, uh, it, 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 it's, the, it's the way that our brains are structured in some kind of way or act as a frame uh, for how we uh, look at the world. Um, not to say that we don't experience things uh, and our realities aren't socially constructed um, through our cultures, but that there is an imprint. Uh, for example, everyone recognizes faces. Um, uh, there are certain things inside of our brains that function in certain ways. Um, so there's cognitive linguists who look at that in terms of linguistics, and there's cognitive psychologists who look at psychology within that lens of cognition. Um, so this is doing the same thing within the field of narratology. Okay, and so um, so if I'm understanding, if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, Sunshine is kind of interjecting a humanities maybe a literary vantage point into an already established field. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, and it's bi-directional, I guess, or at least I believe her purpose is bi-directional, that, um, that we can learn a lot uh, from the work that's being done in, in how brains work um, and uh, what, how, they, how they structure our language um, and also that literature is, is an example of how language is structured that can add to that larger project of cognition. Absolutely. So... Um, 
yeah, I think we were talking about this earlier where, uh, and you explained it in some language, like the way that texts have been formulated, have appeared throughout history can tell us about how, um, in a certain way, how people's brains are working, what they like structures, patterns, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, and and it, that certainly it is on a big level, like on a macro structure level, certainly. And but we also see it in in small rhetorical tools, individual words that are used over and over again. So uh, things like the Cinderella story that that pop up over and over and over again in, in so many different things. Um, why is that a story that is unique? How why is it retold even though it has the same fundamental pattern? What does a Cinderella story need to be the Cinderella story? And what is just texture? Um, and how are those textures provided within the text? Okay, absolutely. So how does um, how does the same kind of core piece get translated through time? And what it, like what is the process of that translation? But also what are those core pieces that remain over multiple retellings? That kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. And so that that on that's kind of the project of narratology. So then um, the cognitive layer goes one step further and tries to relate it to language patterns or some kind of larger um, uh, a project of cognition. Um, and in particular, Sunshine is looking at a folk psychology theory theory of mind so that we, uh, we predict, our minds predict what other people are going to do, that we um, have these kinds of ways of communicating with people, and that literature is uh, a, a game space where we can use the, that theory of mind um, in, in some kind of productive and creative way. Okay, so... Uh, and that's the first kind of piece of the text that I'm interested in taking up is theory of mind. Before we jump into that, uh, there's a few things about Sunshine that make her kind of interesting in her field and in her particular interventions. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, well, she's a woman um, in a in a field that's primarily male. So um, there's there's lots of great um, uh, literature that's coming out right now, and it really in the last ten years on this topic, um, and it continues to move in new directions. So it's very dynamic and it's very recent. Um, and there's there's really not a lot of women's women's scholarship that's going into it. Um, interestingly, though, she's not really looking at um, gender uh, specifically, although the texts obviously if there's a male and female character or two female characters or she, she looks at that content in terms of how it's narratively structured, but really she's interested in these more empirical structures, uh, which is uh, unique to have a woman that's not talking about women specifically. Absolutely. And I think we'll, um, we'll get to this in one of the later pieces, but um, yeah, I was struck when reading this about how much um, she uses her theory, at least in the, in the first section, which is what we're reading the first 40 pages of, um, this text, how much she applies her theory to kind of proving that the texts that we've considered to be canonical are canonical for reasons that she attributes to this kind of, you say folk psychology, right? Yeah, um, that somehow they are structurally superior in some way, or universal, I guess is another good way to put it, that there are universals in text that uh, appeal across everything. Um, I think that narratologists in general, although, you know, I can't speak to, to everybody who's in the field, obviously, um, but are, are interested in unity and coherence in text. So they're looking at the ways in which these patterns create significant holes, um, like with, an, with a W, <laughs> holes, <laughs> holistic, <laughs> um, uh, uh, whereas I think that a lot of uh, gender study and race study um, and class study have to do with difference, um, with how these 
texts become fractured or incomplete in some kind of way um, in terms of the narrative. Um, so it, it, I think it's a part of a larger split in, in uh, English studies and literary studies, certainly, but I think in cultural studies and in humanities in general that shows those kind of two sides of the coin. She's certainly in the camp of unity and coherence. Absolutely. And, and I was struggling reading this. So um, I, my background is in critical theory and kind of the more, um, I think it gets called politically imbued kind of fields like feminist theory and queer theory, although I'd say all of theory is politically right imbued. Um, so I, I come from a background of like canon busting. We should question the canon and we should maybe disagree with the history that's been handed down to us and we should look for different and other texts and missing voices. Um, and that's like a philosophy I ascribe to, but that's also kind of what I've, ways I've been trained. Uh, and so I expected when I realized that that's what Sunshine was doing, that I was going to hate this book. I was really, uh, I was ready to say, okay, this is bunk. Um, and I'm actually really excited because I'm still not fully um, convinced that the canon is the only, you know, set of texts we should be reading or are like superior for these reasons, but um, the tools that she brings to that analysis, I think, are really useful. I, I think that's exactly it, that um, she's focusing on the canon maybe because they're more well-known or well-read, so people may interact better with that, um, you know, with the examples that she's choosing to sure, go through, sure. but I think the tools that she's providing um, can be used in, in a much more cross-discipline kind of way, um, so that makes her yeah, it's, it's it's exciting because you're reading it and you're going like, well, I wouldn't really read Clarissa by Samuel Richardson. It's the longest book ever, and it's not on my list of to-dos. But when I think about literature as something that engages and teases like my the way that I look at the world in terms of how I interact with people, but I'm doing that with people on the page, and I'm interpreting how the people on the page are interacting with one another, it opens up a new interpretive space that I think has a lot of... Um, a lot of room to expand inside of the, the ways that many different scholars take a look at their texts. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's, let's get into some of how, some of the, I think the one major tool she uses actually in this first, although she, she does a number of things. Um, let's get into what, what is theory of mind? I think she would call it um, our mind reading ability. So the, the ability that we have to read each other's minds, and I don't mean that in like a telepathic way. I mean that in a, um, when someone crosses their arms, they're upset with you and it creates a mood for the situation that you're in. And so you um, alter your language based on how that person is reacting. Um, and so I'm talking about a real life situation, not a fictional situation, but that's, a, that's an example of our theory of mind that we're able to uh, read emotions, that we are able to predict how people are going to react based on a remembrance, our memories of how people have reacted in the past. Right. And let's, sorry, just to, I'm interrupting you. I hope that's okay. Um, just to clarify, just cause I feel like, uh, if I was listening, I would think there was a jump there. Um, so what you're saying is we're sitting, we're having a conversation and I cross my arms and you understand that in a certain way. Um, I'm just, I just want to be super clear that, um, you're reading that I have crossed my arms because I feel a certain way. That's right. In her theory, right? Rather than just the body language by itself does something, right? That, that, um, that the body language is tied to a thing that is happening kind of behind the scenes and is a cue for you. Yes. Um, okay. Just to yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, the, the first thing that she mentions is, uh, I think, uh, why did Peter Walsh's hand tremble? Yeah. So she's looking at uh, Virginia Woolf text, and um, she's uh, Ms. Dalloway, right? <laughs> so, 
So um, one of the, exactly one of the uh, first uh, examples that she uses is why did Peter Walsh's hand tremble? So that's uh, the Clarissa, the protagonist of Mrs. Dalloway. Um, uh, she sees Peter Walsh's hand tremble um, and she doesn't think he's cold. She doesn't think that he's frightened. She thinks it's an emotional response to seeing her again, right? Like, so that um, body movement is in, in, interpreted by Clarissa as an emotional response that then uh, moves her dialogue, her language, her response to that in a different direction. So that's an example of a gesture promoting a, a, a linguistic, a verbal response to the action. Absolutely. And... Um... And I think it's important for Zanchan's theory to be useful um, that she's, you know, she walks us through, she explains this theory, how it's working, how um, this interaction is functioning between um, it's Peter and Clarissa in the text. And she goes through and says, it's not X and it's not Y. So maybe it's this other thing. Um, but in the theory, the mind reading happens like instantaneously that we don't even kind of stop at um, X and Y on our way to the thing we understand that we just almost in I don't want to say intuit because it's not intuit but we just understand yeah that we we kind of are this um uh mire of emotion and memory and we can link those things together almost instantaneously through our responses and that's um that's kind of what theory of mind is if we we work on a theory we we put these things together um based on these patterns and structures so let's move on to, there's kind of two other pieces to the way that this theoretical tool is working. She talks then about um, layering. And I, I, I know you have a good example for explaining that. So I'll let you do that, the layering of theory of mind. Yeah. Um, do you mean like intentionality? Yeah, that is exactly okay. what I mean. Sorry. Um, so uh, yeah, she talks about um, uh, how uh, we lay different scenes in literature can have implicit intentionality. So different layers of people understanding things. And she uses a good example of a friend's episode uh, where uh, Chandler and Monica are sleeping together um, and they think no one knows that they're sleeping together, but then someone knows and then they know that she knows, but then that person goes and tells other people and they don't know that she knows that they know, but they know that, that the original Monica and Chandler, you can see how this becomes like a very complicated cycle of he knows that she knows that we know that they don't know. And so inside of particular um, circumstances in literature, we have a uh, very rich scene that has several people in it where they're looking and interpreting different things, uh, generally leading to sometimes humorous misunderstanding of particular situations, but also sometimes increased understanding of situations. And she, um, she cites that really we, the, our knowledge of this uh, doesn't go beyond five levels of intentionality. So that he said that she said would be two levels. He said that I know that you know that I know would be three levels, right? It goes back and right. forth. And really humans can only um, do that without an aid up to five levels and then our remembrance. And even then, um, uh, you know, get past three levels and it's much more difficult to the mind. So like a trained mind can really go past, can really get up to that five level point. Um, and so some authors, and I think this is true of theory of mind in general, play on that way more than authors, other authors do. So Virginia Woolf is an example. She uses over and over again of someone who steeps her situations in intentionality um, uh, in order to distribute and, and shatter um, and sometimes make more realistic because she's 
she's interested in, in having realistic situations um, uh, uh, play out in, in the pages of her novel. I'm wondering if we can discuss for a moment, we're, get, we're getting to kind of the one, one of the pieces that makes me a little bit uncomfortable and not uncomfortable to the point that I think the thing, I guess I still think this is a very useful tool for reading texts. Um, so when she's talking about, when Zentrine is um, describing the five layer maximum for theory of mind, um, she talks about an, like actual tests done on, I think, is it high school students? Um, it's like a literary comprehension text test that um, asks students to read a passage and then reproduce um, without an aid, without, without keeping notes as they read the passage, reproduce the layers of intentionality. And she says that um, beyond five, the chance of getting something wrong, like being, being mixed up in your reproduction goes up something like 60%. Um, and then she takes that, that idea there are a maximum number of layers that mm -hmm. an untrained human brain can kind of hold together at the same time. Um, to talk about, again, like the, the canon, right? Which mm -hmm. That yeah. somehow that shows that people who hit that maximum have done something perfect, that they've hit the, the sweet spot of our cognitive abilities, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, which, which, and like, that's the part where I was kind of going, like, I'm not sure. Yeah, um, uh, I don't know if she talks about it qualitatively like that, So, um, which uh, defers some of the, 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 the discomfort. Me, the, yeah, the discomfort. Um, but certainly we know that rules are made broken um, and that uh, uh, some uh, avant-garde texts are going to be more interested in uh, breaking, just shattering that illusion in, or in, in really challenging the person to uh, go beyond that and move forward. Um, and also they're not hard limits. And I, I think it would be a shame if a, if a creator was like, well, I can't go past five. Right. You know, like that, that would be the real, the real shame here. Um, if, if someone said, well, my, my audience won't get it. That, that somehow how became commodified or marketed in some way in terms of how people start creating. I think more than anything, it's useful in terms of uh, showing that there's a relationship between not only the, how uh, the text is written, like an authorship, um, and all, but also that there is a component of how the reader reconstructs that text within their own mind. And there are these ways of doing that, and there are these kind of, um, uh, not limits, but kind of, uh, they show if you place this within an evolutionary context, right, they show that's one thing that's going to change over time, right? We can kind of see these strands of subjectivity as they're linked together and um, uh, show how maybe they've uh, created text in the past, but maybe more um, uh, importantly, how we look at texts right now um, and are challenged by them and how we're challenged by them. Let's move on to another piece of this text. And I want to do this because the, the second half of the, the second episode of the podcast, we're going to talk about um, kind of the everyday usefulness of theory of mind, but also of um, cognitive narratology, of thinking about what what fiction does for us and what we kind of do with interfiction. Um, before we get into this kind of optimistic um, usefulness piece, I want to kind of tread through this other piece of what Sunshine is doing. And, and I, don't, I shouldn't blame Zentrine because she is picking up on earlier theorists. And, and of course, this happens in your field. You have to refer to established norms in your field, of course. Um, 
she she uses some language that makes me uncomfortable in another way and I want to talk about it so that we're being fair to her we're kind of fully reading all these pieces of this text so I'm, I'm walking around it really carefully here because I'm nervous <laughs> um so she, she talks about how theory of mind um and mind reading is something that most humans can do and she talks about an autistic mind mm-hmm um, As an example of a counterpoint. Yeah, she builds um, the theory of mind um, through the, um, like, we know what minds can do because we've studied minds that can't do it. That's kind of like how she structures that argument that um, we know that theory of mind, you know, we get it after we're four years old and we know that autistic people don't have the same interaction with, with the, the things that we're testing them for um, based on said arguments. I think she uh, she cites Mind Blindness by um, uh, Simon Baron Cohen. Um, that's, that's, that's one of the, the, the that, she, that she cites. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, a kind of a problematic um, binary uh, that's, that's built there um, and one that I'm certain that disability scholars would take real issue to because it kind of uh, stratifies um, this like can do, can't do, uh, can't read literature properly somehow right. because that's how uh, that that argument kind of is structured within the book. Uh, absolutely, and so I, I just want to yeah point out that that's a problem. Um, not that that's the only yeah. reason we're going to talk about it because I also want to talk about because um, the distinction that she makes. I think is useful, even if the language that it's couched in is super problematic. Um, and, and it has to do kind of what we talked about in the opening of the podcast. And, I, and again, I just want us to be really clear about how the language is problematic, but the idea still has some merit, right? Um, so you talked about um, the way, like, why we read fiction and one of the answers to that is that it does something for us and it allows us to kind of apply um, a set of skills that we seem to intuit based on what we know about human interaction um and so the distinction that she makes isn't can't read fiction properly although as you point out that's uh that's one that's one danger in setting up a binary like that is that you'll be read right like that um but it's it's a very particular, what's the example she uses? That she's not talking about people who aren't certain if um, crying means anger or sadness or frustration, but is a person who um, sees that there is water coming out of your eyes and doesn't know what that is at all. Has no kind of marker for response. Right, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, she talks about it quite a bit. And I, I think that um, uh, she... she basically only cites it in order to show proof of theory of mind like like which is a much larger as you said that's a much larger established um i think in neuroscience as well that we know about things about the brain because we've we've looked at brains that are damaged either by trauma or lesions or you know those kinds of things that we know a certain area does something because someone loses an ability when that area becomes damaged that's kind of a larger um puzzle game that 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 uh cognitive science has taken and I think that that's the exact same kind of logical formulation that she's trying to use here which can, which is which is why what makes it a useful tool for her um, in, in, in showing um, this and she does go quite a bit into like a discursive autism studies um, she's, she talks about it at length and I think she talks about it fairly um, but 
you're exactly like like what we said before she she's open um she's opened up this this binary that that puts one there's potentially evaluation of how different people do visualize the world and socially interact um and one of them she aligns with something that's like a superior canon um and that uh, is where the problem comes right yeah. in aligning those things um so let's jump back now that we've kind of and, and i think it is important to do that right to say that we're using the language that she is using and we're kind of looking at um we're trying to consider the binary that she's considered without ascribing um to the same mm -hmm. exact set of ideas or recognizing that this language is um and i hope disability scholars are taking it up and <laughs> taking it apart because they should be for sure <laughs> um well let's i, I want to come back to just briefly um because to me this seems to be it seems to me that where she's connecting cognition and narratology um, is when she's trying to piece together theory of mind as something that happens at a certain point in development of the human brain. And that's also why it gets tied to autism. Um, so can we just... Um, yeah, I, th I think that she uses um, um, uh, the example of a marble game um, to show theory of mind. So in, in this is uh, Simon Baron Cohen, I think, and I think it was done earlier, but with chocolates, which would have been much more fun than marbles, I just like <laughs> to say, because <laughs> then you get chocolate at the end. <laughs> but um, uh, basically, there is someone who's watching um, uh, in a room, and so someone will come into that room and put the marble under a pillow on the table, and then walk out of the room again. So the person who's viewing goes, "Okay, someone just came into that room and put the marble on the table and hid it underneath that pillow." Then a second person will come into the room and move the marble to another place and hide it and then walk out of the room again. And the person who has been watching all of this is asked, where, if the first person comes into the room, where are they going to look for the marble? And so someone with a strong theory of mind would answer under the pillow on the table because they would know that if it was them, they would walk into that room and look where they hid it, not Right. But someone who doesn't necessarily have a strong theory of mind or wouldn't be able to follow that pattern um, of putting themselves in the shoes and predicting the behavior of the person in the room would say, well, it's over there. So that's where the person's going to look necessarily. Um, uh, and so uh, what what this particular study found is that 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 level was found uh, um, at four years old, I believe, three or four kind of was the marker for that. And um, people who had a strong autism uh, also had trouble, um, uh, although it wasn't as explicit. Um, so it's certainly tied to some kind of a development that has to do with prediction, putting yourself in the shoes of someone else to be able to complete that narrative. Where would you look? And it is narrative, right? It's, it's a kind of a storytelling um, device that you're doing there in terms of predicting someone else's ability to that. So it is a useful tool in yeah. that way, in connecting it to narrative. That's where she's connecting it to storytelling. Um, yeah. Right. So being able to, um, she's connecting it to the ability that human beings develop over time. Let's see if I can get this right. Um, to kind of hold multiple factors and sort them out into a logical narrative mm -hmm. kind of progression, uh, despite interruptions or, right, um, yeah, okay. and then our minds are predictive and they're descriptive. Right. So that they do those two things independently of one another. We're able to kind of see how things are going to go, maybe say something that's going to be more antagonistic to get a response that we want, those kinds of things. But also we um, assign descriptions to things in order to remember them better. We, we tag those things in our brain in order to recall them in some kind of way. 
Um, and, and those are all a part of theory of mind, that mind reading that we talked about is kind of that, that, that thing of, uh, um, seeing into someone else and being able to put your own, react to that in a way that is appropriate, socially appropriate, right? That's the construction part. Okay. So we've, uh, we've talked about a useful tool. We've talked about, um, a piece of this text that supports that tool that's a little bit problematic. Um, and then on next week's podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about like, not why I read fiction, but why I read this text. Um, so, all right, this has been a productive discussion and uh, thank you for your time, Emily. Thanks for having me. Oh,